0: Welcome back to the What's Your One More podcast. I am joined today with not only an amazing guest, but a a dear friend of mine, Dr. Steve Tufts. I'm so excited to have you here on the show today. It's been a long time coming, and it's hard to get this man away from the University of Florida. He has such a demanding class and schedule, and uh, I'm just very excited to have him with me today. And you're probably asking yourself, what is a professor from the University of Florida going to talk about today? I can assure you this, hang on, it's going to be a great one, because it's not as academia as you automatically think when you hear this here. But Steve, let's go ahead and get started. You're a former owner operator of Keller Williams uh, company here at Atlantic Beach, called Atlantic Partners. And uh, you spent a good amount of time there and and worked your way through a recession into success. And, you know, kind of tell us a little bit about that as we get started here.
1: Well, yeah, Qu- Quentin, first, thanks for having me. Thrilled to be here and uh, honored to be invited. So, yeah, you know, I've had an interesting career. I've spent 20 years, 22 years or something like that in corporate America, you know, and reached the corner office of corporate America and decided uh, sometime around 1998 or thereabouts that uh, I was making a lot of money for other people and that I should probably try to apply my skills and all of my energy toward making money for myself my own family <laughs> and my own partners So I went out on my own and owned several companies. And along the way, I ended up uh, kind of entering into the back door of the residential real estate business in Atlanta, actually. And um, in the third year of having that team, we were the number one team for Keller Williams in the whole state of Georgia, number 27 in the nation. And so we did pretty good.
0: Yeah. And
1: um, I was approached uh, literally in the hallways one time. Uh, One of my uh, partners asked me if I had a minute and he Pulled me into a conference room, and he says to me, "Uh, you're from Florida, right? I said, yes, I am. Born in Jacksonville and grew up in Florida. So he asked me if I'd be interested in opening some Keller Williams offices in North Florida. And of course, I said, yeah, what do I have to do? And uh, you know, 18 years later, here I am, or 17 years later, here I am. uh, We now have a pretty decent-sized operation. And I think we have 11 locations, over 1,200 agents, up and down the northeast corner of Florida, and, um, so that's how I got in the real estate business, kind of through the back door, but we've done pretty well in 2018, which is the last time I saw the rating, uh, Keller Williams Atlantic partners, which is our entity mm-hmm. was the, in the top 100 largest real estate companies in America by transaction count. So we've, we've done okay.
0: Yeah. I would say that's not bad. I would say <laughs> it's not bad at all. And I know there's w- bigger history before that, which we're going to get into here. Um, but currently- you're at the University of Florida, and uh, you decided one of the days that my goal is to do the following, and you started going after that later on in life. But uh, I tell you what, it looks like you fit right in over there.
1: Well, when I got my master's degree back in 1980, I thought about going and getting my doctorate and uh, wasn't able to do it, couldn't afford it, and timing wasn't right. Probably probably my head wasn't right either, but um, I always was watching for opportunities to go back to school and try to get a doctorate. And I don't know what I was going to do with it, but I just had this compelling desire to have a a PhD or equivalent. And so um, sometime around, I don't know when it was, 2009 or 2010, I wrote to the University of Florida and inquired about doing a PhD there. And um, it just didn't happen, of course. It Mm -hmm. wasn't the right timing for me. But several years later, 2014, I got an email from the University of Florida that said, hey, we found your name in a file. And we see that you've inquired about doing a PhD, and we just introduced a new program, a doctorate of business administration program, and we're putting together the first cohort. And we'd like to know if you'd like to be in the first cohort of our new DBA program. <clears throat> Excuse me. And I was, um, at the time, 61 years old, and so I said to them, what are you going to do with a 61-year-old guy uh, in your program? By the time I graduate, I'll be 64. What are you going to do with with me and?" It turned out that there was a forecast among faculty members that there was going to be a huge shortage of faculty members. In other words, the number of professors retiring far exceeded the number of new PhDs graduating. So there was a shortage of professors. And so I took the bait. And uh, at the sweet age of uh, 61 years old, I went back to college. And um, I can remember there was a a two-week boot camp kind of a kickoff to the degree. Mm-hmm. And it was the first class I had to take was statistics. Now I hadn't been in a statistics class since around 1979, so I was a little <laughs> fearful. But as it turned out, uh, you know three years later, I've walked across the stage, got my uh, got my doctorate in business administration, and they hired me. Yeah, and I've been uh, been teaching in the marketing department, taught real estate marketing, some financial classes, entrepreneurship. So I've been doing I'm in my sixth year of teaching. Fantastic.
0: They're yeah. very, very lucky to have you because some of the stuff you share, um, I can attest to. I've been to some of those classes as a guest. Um, and I can tell you that some of those students are extremely lucky to hear um, the values that you share with them. And And that's kind of what we're going to get into today, because what I have found in our relationship is there's a lot of stuff you share that a lot of people just don't get. And every time I've had a new team member personally inside of my organization listen to the conversation we're about to have, they're blown away. And they tell me, you know, I've worked at Fortune 500 companies. I've been a part of major organizations. No one thinks, does, and acts, and shares that kind of information with people that are not executives. The mindset. The mindset and the goal planning and the planning to the now, that stuff doesn't get shared with people enough. Because when we think about goals, we think about uh, almost like New Year's resolutions. You know, I hear you talk about that all the time is that people set goals like New Year's resolutions. I want to do this. I'd like to have that. But I, they, there's no action plan to get there. And so um, I really wanted to kind of delve into that a little bit and have you talk about that mindset and, and what it takes from a mindset to from an achiever, from a victim mentality. What is what's us well, break that down? What's the difference between a victim mentality and someone that's a, an achiever, someone that's a uh, that's a doer?
1: Well, uh, before I answer that, let me just give credit where credit's due. You know, most of the things that I talk about are not original thoughts of my own. I've learned them along the way from various mentors I've had. And I'm always sitting in a classroom somewhere or reading a book or listening to something. And so I've just been able to coalesce a lot of the ideas that I've learned over the years
0: into a process that works for me. Isn't that what a lot of really high-end speakers do, though?
1: Well, you've probably seen... Yes, they do. (laughs) You've probably seen uh, in some of my presentations, I will put up there uh, the phrase that success leaves clues, Mm -hmm. and that means you don't have to do everything on your own. You can just go look at how other successful people have done things and just figure out what they did and see if it works for you. So, um, you know, I have people that I'm very, very fond of their teaching, guys like John Maxwell, guys like Patrick Lincioni, of course, Gary Keller, other people who are wonderful teachers. And so I tend to follow their stuff and, and see what works for me. But back to your point about victim and achiever, I'll tell you a couple things. From a definitional standpoint, in my mind, a victim is something that lets things happen to them or expects things to happen for them on their behalf. And they're always a victim of circumstances Mm -hmm. because they're not controlling their own destiny. Achievers take action. Achievers take accountability and ownership. And when I mean accountability and ownership, I don't mean that they're reporting into somebody and, you know, like having a coach or whatever. I mean, they, they own the outcome themselves. So that's the real issue. And what I've found is, uh, particularly as it relates to entrepreneurs, there's a very short distance between a dreamer and a doer, a dreamer and an achiever. Um, and I, I like to sort of think about maybe you're at a Christmas party or maybe you're at a Sunday school class or somewhere in a sure. group of people. And uh, let's say you've decided that you're going to take some initiative, maybe start your own business, maybe do something new. And um, you say to somebody, um, "Hey, I just uh, started a new business." What you find is that everybody is interested in that. Correct. Like, what's your business? What are you going to do? How did you get the idea? Tell me more. Tell me more. Wow, that's so cool. You, you hear all this stuff, and that's the person you listen to. In that same group, there could be somebody standing in that group, and they'll pipe up, pop, uh, pipe up, and say, "I got an idea for a business." <laughs> And nobody's interested. <laughs> You're right. Nobody's interested. People are interested in action. People are interested in doers. What I find is that victims don't take action. Victims wait for things to happen for them or on their behalf, almost like an entitlement mentality, like they're entitled to mm-hmm. success and somebody has to give them success or give them opportunity, whereas achievers go out and find it they seek it they ask for it they ask for help
0: they take action that's the difference that i see between victims and achievers and typically victims surround themselves with other victims too you know the old adage show me your friends i'll show you your future type mentality you know it, it, achievers want to be around higher achievers they want to learn and grow better from other people
1: you know it's funny it's absolutely true and you know it's funny whenever I um, am around a group of entrepreneurs or potential entrepreneurs, because I'm a faculty advisor in the Entrepreneurship Center Mm -hmm. at the University of Florida. And it's uh, interesting that the total amount of effort and the total expenditure to take an idea and turn it into a business is about four actions and about $200. Wow. And that's the difference between somebody who's just dreaming about something happening in the future versus a person that takes action and actually makes it happen. Yeah. It's about four four little actions, takes about an hour or two, and uh, it takes about 200 bucks.
0: Isn't it always the smallest things though, that just get you to the next level? And that's, mm-hmm. that's it's amazing to me, and that kind of sums that up. Absolutely. So those achievers, they're setting goals. And I love the story you tell about the, uh, the, the the study that was done about the people that think about goals you know, like New Year's resolutions. I just said, I want to do this and I want, to, I want to lose weight. I want to get this car. I want to buy this house versus writing those down versus sharing those with someone. Do you mind elaborating on that just a little bit? Sure. Uh, a
1: study done by uh, Dr. Gail Matthews uh, out in California and I'm going to summarize the study. Perfect. Her study was far more detailed but I'm going to summarize <laughs> it. But just putting it in to uh, a conversation that we can relate to, she found and I'll use three levels of goal-setting processes. Okay. She found more than that in her study, but just to summarize it into something we can understand. She found that over time, people who tend to have their goals loosely assembled in their mind and in, only in their mind will attain goals at a level, relatively speaking, at a level of about 43%. So you set 10 goals. Let's say mm-hmm. you set 10 goals, come back a year later, and you've just had them in your mind thinking about them, the study showed that there'll be somewhere around 40%, 45% goal attainment. And, and whereas if someone actually wrote those goals down and had them on paper somewhere, maybe, in a, maybe just in a pad on your iPad or, or maybe in a journal somewhere or maybe even just in a, on a piece of paper in your top desk drawer, that those people would attain goals at a level closer to 60%. increase
0: just by writing it down. Yeah,
1: nice big increase just by writing it down. And then the real achievers are the ones that share it with an accountability partner. And they share it uh, in a method where you're going to have a conversation about it on a regular basis. And this is not an accountability session whereby you feel bad about what you did or didn't do. It's just keeping you on track. Mm -hmm. It's keeping the subject matter of the goals at the top of mind And those people achieve at a level of closer to 75%. So what happens as I talk to younger people about this, they're afraid to share their goals. And the reason they're primarily afraid to share them is they don't want to be judged. Interesting. They don't want to be judged. They'll say, well, I don't want people to know what I'm working on, or I don't want people (laughs) to think that I didn't attain my goals, or I don't want people to make fun of me for wanting to do certain things that I'm trying to do. And so, they're afraid to be judged, and so, therefore, they won't ask for accountability relationships. So, what I always add to that in my teaching is this. It depends on who you ask. Correct. Okay. You can't give your goals to someone who might be in competition with you or someone who might not have your best interest at heart and expect them to encourage you to attain them. Yeah, I wouldn't go
0: ask a competitor to help me achieve my goals.
1: Or maybe you wouldn't ask your big brother, or maybe you wouldn't ask your dad, or maybe you wouldn't ask your spouse. Uh, Not that they wouldn't all have your best interests in mind, but sometimes they might be judgmental about what you're trying to achieve. Right. And so the best advice in this category is to pick someone who will encourage you and help you. Uh, I've had several times where I've handed my goal sheets to people, even at, at my age and with what I'm trying to accomplish, and they read it and they, they go, oh, hey, right down here, goal number goal number four. I, I know a guy I can introduce you to that could ah, help you there. there it is. So not only am
0: I getting encouraged, I'm getting assistance. You're getting people to buy into your goals. Correct. And you're getting people to help you because you're sharing it with them. They're like, I can be of assistance. Correct. I can help. Correct. So what I find
1: in general, particularly in younger people who are new to the goal-setting process— is this fear of judgment Mm -hmm. causes them to not want to share their goals,
0: and therefore, they don't achieve them. Simple as that. There you go. Simple as that. So, you know, when you talk about that goal setting, there's um, I've always found this part fascinating. You know, when people set goals, statistics show it's always around New Year's because we're starting a new year, we're fresh, we're wiping the slate clean, we're creating some sort of New Year's resolution. That is, the the media pumps that into people, they've been taught that, it's easy. And so people set goals and go, you know, this year I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna be a homeowner, I'm gonna invest in my 401k. But it's a notion without actions. And you do a wonderful job of creating, okay, let's take that, let's dive a little deeper, and let's put some action steps into place there. And I love how you talk about this process of, you know, one primary goal on the year, one primary goal with three strategies to help obtain that goal. And inside of each strategy, we're going to put five action steps because it's easier to keep count of those action steps to go, all right, got this one, got that one. And, and you're, you're achieving along the way, not just this one ambiguous goal that you want to get to. You want? Can you break that down for us a little bit?
1: Yeah, let's uh, back up a little bit. So w- what typically happens, there, there are two things I'd like to back up to. The first one is that most people will set goals according to the outcomes or the results they want to achieve. Okay. Okay. Like, for example, maybe they want to improve their health, so they say, I want to lose 20 pounds. Okay. Or someone wants to improve their financial position, so they say, I want to make a $40,000 bonus this year. Okay. Let's just say that that's a goal that they might set for themselves. What they don't do is they don't back that up to the activities that lead to the outcomes. And so what I encourage people to do is to set goals in terms of outcomes like Mm -hmm. losing weight or financial achievement or whatever. And then I ask them to back that up into the activities that would drive it. What would you have to do on a daily basis, hourly basis, weekly basis to make that happen? And what most people will do is they'll set a goal like New Year's resolution. I'm gonna lose 20 pounds. But they don't follow that with the daily habits that it would take for them To achieve the weight loss or the daily habits that would help them achieve the financial gain they're looking for. So, this process that you're describing talks about both ends of that spectrum. So, number one is what's the goal? Mm -hmm. Number two, the second level is what are the strategies that I'm going to use to attain that goal? And number three, within each of those strategies, what are the actionable items that I can take and measure that are going to get me there because it's not what happens is people retain the goal. Like new year's resolutions, they retain the goal. They still want to lose the weight. What they lose is the activities that they were supposed to be doing on a daily basis that would get them to the goal. So they run out of gas, they run out of energy. They quit about February 15th. They're done. The
0: backsliding starts mid February always. Right. And, and, you know, and that's the great point. They run out of energy because they just, they don't have the steps to get there. And, steps and, and mastery, it's, it's all part of it. And, and people forget about that. You know, the notion of I just want to as if it's going to happen because you said it is, is a flawed notion at best. But people live by that.
1: Yeah, they do. And the other thing that people miss is they miss the conversion. I like to teach and talk about conversion rates. Okay. They miss the conversion between the activities and the outcomes. So let me just give you an example. Okay. I'll give you a silly example. If you knew that losing a pound of weight meant that you had to have a net burn of 3,500 calories, let's just say that you knew that, that in order to lose a pound of weight, you had to net burn 3,500 calories. So now to lose a pound, I have to reduce my caloric intake by 3,500 okay. or I have to increase my burn through exercise or whatever by 3,500 calories. Right. And so now I can convert back to what are the activities I have to do on a daily basis. How far do I have to walk? How many calories do I have to eliminate from my diet? What type of cardio exercise do I need to do? So that conversion Mm -hmm. of 3,500 calories per pound, that's the conversion between the outcome and the activity. And that same type of conversion can be applied anywhere. Quentin, you and I both know in our businesses, which are largely referral-based businesses, Mm -hmm that in order to get referrals, I have to have a certain top-of-mind position with the people who are going to refer me, and that that top-of-mind position is attained by interacting with these people over time until they realize that we're the best referral source they have, or that's not the right term, but we're the best referral destination for them. And so if we knew how many times we had to talk to that person in a year in order to be in top of mind with them so that they would refer to us, Mm -hmm. then we would know exactly how many times we have to talk to people.
0: Yeah, and and it really is that simple, but we tend to miss that mark, you know, and a lot of people tend to miss that, you know, and and obviously we're using an extreme example here at 3,500 calories, we understand that, but the notion is that you have to have a metric and you have to understand it in order to achieve it, but you can put actionable measures in place to get there. That's correct. And a lot of people just don't do that because they don't think like that. And they haven't been taught. It's not their fault. They just haven't been taught that yet. And so one of our, you know, goals in this podcast is to kind of get people to think about these actionable steps more so than just the goal. Because if you do the actual steps, the goal will help itself. Now, there's something that you've brought up numerous times, and this kind of goes bringing it into the one you know, one thing, as, as we've heard many people in, inside of uh, your organization talk about, mainly because this is Gary Keller's book that he wrote. Mm-hmm. But inside that, he says the domino effect. Correct. And will you speak to that for just a moment to our audience and kind of let them know exactly what this is? This is one of my favorite analogies, by the way.
1: So the domino effect is um, uh, a... Uh, visual in my mind that mm. gary keller and jay papazan who wrote the book the one thing that they created out of research that they did <clears throat> it's a wonderful visual and the science on it is that a domino has the ability as it topples to topple a domino of 50 percent larger area or and this mass. is this
0: is scientifically proven
1: correct so When you think about that as a visual, it means that if you have a small thing in front of you, but it has the ability to topple something 50% larger, then to the extent that you could line these dominoes up in a row so that something small could then topple something 50% larger, which in turn would topple something 50% larger, which in turn would topple 50% larger. And so the domino effect is taking a small action that's well-calculated that's kind of in the row, or I don't know how to describe, but in a line, like dominoes would be Mm -hmm. in a line. Dominoes don't topple unless they're close to one another and in a line. Right. Then you realize that the small action that I take now, if it's in line with something larger and then subsequently larger and larger, then the compounding effect of 1.5 times 1.5 times 1.5 times 1.5 becomes massive over time,
0: provided you take the first action And how massive does it become in this in this graphic? And by the way, for those of you that are listening, please tune into our YouTube channel and subscribe. You'll actually see the graphs that we're talking about on there. So if you get a chance, go there, subscribe, and take a look at what we're talking about.
1: Yeah, I'm not sure if I remember the exact specifics, but I think if by the 18th domino, you've toppled the Leaning Tower of Pisa. Yes. And I think by the 31st domino, you've, uh, you're at the top of the Eiffel Tower. I think that's yep. the math on it. It's
0: massive. It's massive. And by and, the 55th... You're at the moon. You're at the moon. Yeah. So, I mean, we're talking about a single real-life-sized domino, 55 action steps later, the compounding effect of that one action step taking care of everything else, 55 things that are distanced from a table-sized domino to the moon. Mm-hmm. So when we break that down, if I'm a salesperson, let's just do this real quick. If, if you're a salesperson and you want to make seven figures, that might be to the moon for you, right? So let's say seven figures. One actionable step is lead generating? If you can lead generate, just that's all you got to focus Your whole day is based around lead generating. It's interesting that we've actually seen that domino impact that result.
1: So here's the, here's the way to think about that. Okay. If the, if the domino, you gotta remember, number one, they have to be close together. Right. Or they don't topple into one another. Number two, they have to be in a line sort of, or they don't topple one another. And so... If we use your analogy of lead generating as a salesperson, if you're spending your time hanging out with your buddies, that's not lead generation. Correct. If you're spending your time meeting new people, that's lead generation, and that has the ability to topple another domino. To make the dominoes really fall, you want to hang around with people that have influence. They have influence in circles where you don't have influence so that by you befriending someone or creating a relationship with someone who is in a completely different networking group or has a large sphere of influence, you know, say they're the CEO of a small company or say they're the pastor of a large church or say they're the president of one of the local clubs, they have influence that you don't have. And so that's a domino that has a compounding effect because it's not just you and one of your buddies, it's you and somebody in a completely different circle that can can in, increase your network and thereby increasing your ref, amount of potential referrals.
0: Yeah, and so we think about influence it's an interesting sphere of influence. I think today's world thinks the sphere of influence is hey, if I can get this person to follow me online or if this person befriends me online and they've got 22,000 organic followers, I'm gaining influence. That's one way, but the most effective way is what you're describing right now and that's sphere of influence. And sphere of influence is something that I think is just, it's, it's a lost uh, talking point that a lot of people are not aware of. And I'd love to take a minute to kind of define that because you said that. So can you talk a little bit about sphere of influence and the importance of that? And and actually the study you did on that I thought was just absolutely incredible that talks about doesn't matter how you look, doesn't matter what you say, that sphere of influence is the only thing that matters.
1: Well, it was the subject of my doctoral dissertation, so thanks for giving <laughs> me the, uh, the lead in on that. <laughs> there you go. My theory was, well, first thing is I'll say that although we talk about sphere of influence fairly freely in in our world, in the practitioner world, you and I talk about sphere of influence like we talk about having a car out in the parking lot. It's All It's just part right? of what we do. Because mm-hmm. it's so important. Right. In academia, where they do this type of scholarly research, no one had really ever defined or researched sphere of influence. And so I published one of the first papers— It wasn't published in an academic journal, but it was copyrighted by the University of Florida on sphere of influence. And what I did is I did a very straightforward study of the amount of uh, networking that different people had done, realtors primarily, and how their sphere of influence correlated to their sales performance. And the part you're making, the point you're making is that I also added to the study a the concept of does personality matter? So would someone who's more outgoing or more hardworking or more organized or whatever their personality characteristics or work habits might be, did that have any influence on sales performance? As it turned out in my study, uh, it turned out that regardless of personality, uh, if someone has a sphere of influence, their sales performance will be higher. The correlations were really strong between someone's sphere of influence and their sales performance. So it's a correlation between how many people you know and that you're interacting with and the result you're looking for, the number of transactions that you might complete. So this is a really fun study for me because it validated some things that I had a hunch about in my business. So I was able to actually do my doctoral dissertation, solve a problem in my business. And that problem is this. We were constantly trying to figure out why do some realtors succeed and some realtors fail? And you could make the same connection on mortgage bankers or insurance agents or any, any sales any sales any job, sales, any sales, any sales, any sales job. You could make the same ask the same question. Why do some succeed and some fail? And the theory was, well, if you're outgoing, you'll be a better salesperson. or Well, if you're this or that, th- that turned out to not be true. It was regardless of personality type, Sphere of influence mattered because what I did in this study is I actually assessed personality to see if there was a correlation between people's personality and the out, the results that they were re- achieving, the outcomes they were achieving. No no real correlation. Interesting. No real correlation. The correlation was this. If they spent their time, regardless of their personality, building their sphere of influence, then that correlated to sales performance in a huge way. So. When we define sphere of influence, there were three components of it. The first component is the number of people that you're interacting with. That's the first component. But that's not the only component. The second component is your influence with them. In other words, you could know a lot of people, but nobody, if no one respects you, then you have no influence. Correct. Okay, so the second component was your influence over the group. The third component was their influence over others.
0: So Probably the most important.
1: Right, because that's the domino effect. That's, now that's the compounding. If you have influence over them and they have influence over others, then you find this compounding effect taking place and you're growing your business. And so we changed the way we interviewed real estate agents to join our company to see how their sphere of influence was constructed or how they had it. You know, in Florida, you have a lot of people coming to Florida to live or retire, and they get a real estate license. They want to be in real estate, but they don't know anybody, and they fail. Others come to Florida and join all the clubs and meet people and make friends, and next thing you know, they know a couple hundred people, and the next thing you know, they're selling a lot of real estate. You probably have the same exact situation in the mortgage banking industry. 100%. Because you have people that can influence others, mm-hmm. and they're not afraid to go make the acquaintances, shake hands, have coffee, get to know people, demonstrate their competence. Next thing you know, they're selling a lot of a lot of business. Yeah. And those are the people that usually stay in the business, not the people that come and go. Yeah, this is just an example of the compounding effect. Correct. And uh, how to use your, your own personal influence to influence others, and then they in turn, pay it forward. And the next thing you know, you have a massive referral network.
0: And you know, I, I firmly believe this can be applied to social media as well. And I think there's something to be said about that, that inside of social media, you can actually do some of those same things um, from a digital age that, that are just as equally as impactful. So, you know, I don't want this to be lost on, oh, well, they're just talking, you know, face-to-face. No, this can be done digitally as well. And those same concepts apply to what you just said right there. And I think that that's, um, that's something I wanted to make sure that the listeners get a chance to, to take in. But in order to do this, you have to master some fundamentals. You have to be able to master the fundamentals. So do you want to speak to what the fundamentals are? I think what happens is that people... Particularly
1: when you're in hard times, like we're in a time now in our industry where people are struggling, yeah, already, and we're just getting started. I mean, the Uh, economy's struggling, right? Right? We're just getting started. the The fundamentals that I'm talking about are things upon which you build a strong business or a strong life. Okay, Uh, fundamentals in business, for example, are, for example, are you good at building relationships? And typically, building relationships is about just getting to know people and having a connection with them. And one of the fundamental skills in that is your ability to ask questions, just as an example. I'm always amazed at how many salespeople, for example, are pathetic at asking questions. They jump in and they want to start talking and telling everybody what they know and demonstrating their products and, you know, blah, 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 blah. blah. And they haven't actually connected with the person yet. Connection takes questioning. So one of the fundamental skills, for example, is questioning. How many times who ever have you ever known someone, Quentin, who just couldn't ask a good question?:
0: Way too many times.
1: Think about it when you're interviewing someone and they ask you a really insightful question, and it just wows you Stand that up. someone had this insightful question, They had this curiosity about something that was in your world and how it connected you with that person. Mm-hmm. Uh, questioning as an example is fundamental to me. A second set of fundamentals to me are is the communication style, just your response rates to people, how you respond. And so on. these are fundamental things. Are you good at responding? Are you timely with your response and so on? Um, an overused word in our industries is the word professionalism. It's funny. Everybody talks about professionalism. Very few people define it. What does it mean to be a professional? Does that mean I wear a suit to work every day? No, that's not what it means. Right. But things like being punctual, things like returning phone calls, things like um, making first appearances, things like being prepared when you show up, having a plan when you show up, all of these things are fundamentals that can really make or break the start of the dominoes falling. Absolutely. If you show up and you're unprepared and you're late and you're, you don't have a plan for the meeting you're going to have with someone, what you find out is that, do- that first domino is not even falling. You're done. You're done. You're done. That first impression you're- is over with. Fundamentals are, are insanely important. And I think people spend a lot of time looking for some sort of a silver bullet that will make their business magically grow And they don't realize that it's about how you interact with people, how many phone calls you make a day, what you say when you're on the phone Mm. call, how many hands you shake, how many introductions you make, how many presentations you make, how many times you share valuable information with someone so that they see that you add value, just fundamental things, just fundamental things.
0: Now, is it fair to say that the amount of pressure, and I'm going to kind of, let's relate this a little bit to like someone like Nick Saban, right? That's not fair. To me, it's not fair that that he was put into a system. He's an amazing coach, right? And even though I'm not a fan of that school, amazing coach. But he put in there, and I call it the Nick Saban effect. He was instant success, a lot of it, by the way. And every team is now searching for someone like him to achieve that instant success because they saw it happen to one. Therefore, they, it's bound to happen Or else. We see that on social media. Someone explode. Well, that can happen to me. I'm going to do the same thing. Um, you know, a new business takes off. Well, that happened to them. I can do the same thing. But there's fundamentals that Nick Saban puts into place, and, and, and he has that, which is why he is successful. And he holds to those fundamentals. He doesn't bend on them. That's also why some of these other people are succeeding in areas that other people want to be a part of, but yet they can't hold to these fundamentals. Well,
1: he can't duplicate the entire process that he uses. Sure. Look at how many schools have hired a Nick Saban uh, understudy, yep. Yeah, one of his coaching tree members, and have not won With that person. I mean, there's there's lots of them out there. Uh, There are some that are better than others, but you can't automatically just hire one of Nick Saban's understudies and have a winning football team because it takes forever to create all that he's created.
0: Thank you so much for choosing us today. We're definitely not done with our podcast, but we are going to take a really short sponsor break and then we'll get right back to the show. I've been in the lending business for 20 years, I've seen many different lenders. During those 20 years, I recognized there's a difference between being an originator and an advisor. And the team at Bank of England is full of advisors. They take their time to understand your needs, they take the time to structure a mortgage for you and your family, and I cannot recommend them enough. If you're in the market to purchase a home, maybe it's a second home, maybe it's an investment property, or you're looking to refinance your current property that you live in, take a minute to work with the advisors at Bank of England Mortgage. They're a nationwide lender, and you can find your local branch at boemortgage.com. com. Because it's more than loans, it's people. Thanks so much for letting us give a shout out to our sponsor. All right, now back to the
1: podcast. Two stories. John Maxwell, who's one of the one of my favorite authors and uh, you know one of the current leadership gurus. John Maxwell told a story one time. I was in a seminar he was leading, and he had told a seminar one time that a young person walked up to him after he had spoken at the seminar and said, Mr. Maxwell, I want to do what you do. I want to be just like you. He said, So how do how do I do it? And Mr. Maxwell, if you know him, he's got this big That's curious. He's got that preacher voice there. Preacher voice, you know. (laughs) he turns to this young, under this young person, and he says, If you want to do what I do, you have to have done what I've done, which means years of fundamentals, years of mastery, years of probably wrote a couple of books that didn't sell, probably did a couple seminars that bombed, probably led a church that didn't quite succeed at first. And he'll even tell you his stories. John Maxwell will tell you his stories about not having the fundamentals in place. So that's one thing. Second story There's a story that goes around about John Wooden, the former basketball Mm -hmm. coach at UCLA. And they were talking about uh, the things that he does as fundamentals. I don't know if you know this, but he used to teach his recruits how to put their socks on. I've
0: heard this story.
1: And the reason he did it is because he learned that if you don't have a good foundation on your feet playing basketball, you can't move good. You can't shoot. You can't run. And so he taught them how to put their socks on to keep them from a, a, avoid, so they could avoid blisters right. on their feet. And so this is a fundamental thing. Well, how many years did it take John Wooden to figure out, wow, I can't put my starting point guard in there if he's got a big blister on his foot. He can't move. So these are the type of little things that add up. There's a book uh, I read last year uh, called Atomic Habits. Great book. In that book, they, they tell the story of the British cycling team. Do you remember the story? I remember this. I love the story. Yeah, it's a wonderful story. Talk about fundamentals. Correct. The guy they hired to coach them and to turn the team around decided that they didn't need a major overhaul. They couldn't do a major overhaul. What they needed to do was to make take baby steps and so he implemented what I think
0: he called the 1% a day plan. Is The that? 1% a day. And it's also fair to say th- that cycling team was in the bottom. Like they, they, were, were in the, they were in the dumpster of cycling. They were awful.
1: And, of course, subsequently they've been wonderful. Mm-hmm. But his goal was every day we're going to improve something by 1%. And the compounding effect, there the it. dominoes, 1.01 times 1.01 times 1.01 times by 100 days – they're two or three times better than they were before. You know, they changed just little things like how they lubricated their chain, how they, how they hydrated, how they slept, ad- how they slept, how they adjusted the seat on their bike, how they just little tiny things every
0: day. And the next thing you know, they're Olympic champions. Yeah. And and um, further than that, they're destroying the rest of the cycling world too. They had a well, rain for some time. These are examples of fundamentals that you you asked me about. You know, mm-hmm. Little things. You could
1: uh, take this into the professional world and just say, how many people do you know that are habitually late? Just that one thing, they're habitually late, and therefore they're an underperformer. Well, you realize that being habitually late pretty much stops the first domino from toppling. (laughs) You know, many times it does. Sure. Okay. Because I don't want to be associated
0: with somebody who's habitually late. And I used to have a friend that said um, the building didn't move. (laughs) <laughs> when people would say they were like, hey, the building didn't move. So uh, I always thought that was funny. And uh, to this date, I still repeat it to people. Um, but I'll tell you this. Uh, one of the things that I like about mastering the fundamentals, one of the objections we get right out the gate, and I know you've heard it before, is Steve, this sounds great, but do you know how much time I don't have in the day? Like, I don't, I've got to do this. I've got to get that. I'm responsible for the following things. Talk to me about time management. And I see you smiling because I know where this is heading because I've only heard this 10 times over 10 years and and I love it, by the way. I absolutely love it. So I I want to make sure we get this on the show. Talk to me about time management and the challenges the myths of time management.
1: So there's only one myth in my in my mind and you you're the reason I'm smirking is because I hear this so constantly. In fact, I just finished final exams at the University of Florida and you'd be surprised how many emails I get from students after their final exams mm-hmm. looking for a way to recover from having performed badly on a final exam. They're always looking for something. And eventually they will tell me, well, I was very busy this semester with my other classes (laughs) and with my activities and with my officership of my clubs and with my family, I had all these things. And, and so I couldn't spend enough time on your class, Dr. Tufts. And so would you please cut me a break?
0: And I always say no,
1: (laughs) but that's, I just, so I just finished that. And that's from a student
0: level, but we see it even we see in adulthood. It,
1: we, we do. I we mean, see it in
0: adulthood. From, from children to students to collegiate to adulthood, you see it. You see it. So uh, I just what ran out of time.
1: I, I always challenge anyone who tells me they don't have time. I always challenge them with the following question. And I don't know if you'll like the analogy or not, but you've seen me do it many I, times. I think it's a fantastic analogy.
0: It's a tough one because it hits home. It's a tough one.
1: If uh, If your phone rang... And uh, and you picked it up and you looked at the caller ID and on the caller ID you noticed that it was the Mayo Clinic uh, and you know the phone said sounds you know, probably the Mayo Clinic calling you would sort of go wow would you answer that phone call or not oh absolutely everyone would yeah and if that phone call if that phone call said hi this is uh, Susie I'm the head nurse in the emergency room at Mayo Clinic and your fill in the blank your sure. son daughter husband brother spouse sister, just anybody, been family brought family. in by an ambulance uh, to the mayo clinic
0: um what would you do i would say i'm on my way drop my phone i'm, I'm out the door you couldn't stop me from getting there fast okay wait a minute you, you
1: you wouldn't check email first no you wouldn't uh text somebody and not at all no no you wouldn't uh have a meeting to go to would you go to a meeting i would not uh, that person standing in your doorway that just asks you if you you got a minute
0: running through them,
1: r- knock them over. Right? Right. Okay,
0: right. so you got to go. There's so me. in other
1: words, you can block time, you can make time for that. Oh yeah. Okay. Regardless of emails, texts, somebody standing in your doorway, any other distraction. So my challenge to you, Quentin, is you don't have a problem with time blocking. You have a problem with priorities. There it is. And so what happens is if something of high enough priority crosses your desk, you will instantly, without hesitation, make time for it. You will clear your calendar, everybody else out of the way, and you will make time for it because it's a priority. So therefore, you do have the ability to manage your time. What happens is you just haven't established your priorities in strong enough order. Yep. I'll tell you a funny story of my own if I if you'll indulge me. Yeah. Once when I was doing my doctoral work, I um I was kind of I had procrastinated a paper and it was a pretty pretty big paper that I had to finish and I needed to get it done before Friday. So I blocked Thursday on my calendar. And I thought I'm going to need all day. I've just got to block out Thursday. So I did something I had never done before. I I did a combination of things, but just follow me on this. I I told my assistant, I said, look, I'm going to turn off my email. You can't email me. And I'm going to turn off my phone. I mean, off, off, not silence, off, so you can't call me or text me. I don't have a home phone, so you can't call me on my home phone. I told my wife, honey, I need the house today. I need the house to be quiet, so would you please take the dogs, put the dogs at the groomer Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, go, go find something to do, go shopping, go exercising, go visit your mom, whatever you need to do. I need the house myself. Cause I'm, I'm going to take care of today. Everything is going to be off my calendar. No phone calls, no interruptions, no dogs wagging there, nothing. Everything is out of the way. So, and I'm going to write this paper and, and I told her, I said, you can come home around four o'clock. I should be done around four o'clock. So at 11 o'clock, I called my assistant and she said, oh, I thought you weren't checking in today. I said, well, I'm done with my paper. She goes, what do you mean? It's only been like three or four hours. That's why I'm done. And what I realized in that moment that all of the distractions that I normally have in my life told me that I needed to allocate eight hours for that paper. Hmm. But when I eliminated all of the other things and made it the sole priority for that day, no phone calls, no text messages, no TV, no dogs, no, you know, my wife interrupting me, you know, just asking me if I need a glass of water. None of that. I got everything off of my calendar except that paper. I did it in three hours, which taught me a lesson about the number of things that can get in your way, get in the way of your priorities. Mm -hmm. And once you make the priority, the, the priority, capital (laughs) T-H-E, it's amazing how quickly you can get it done. What happens is other things get in the way.
0: Always. Always. And how empowering is that? Well, I've told that story 50 times. (laughs) It's one of the most empowering feelings that you get. Absolutely. You know, and and it's not being, that's the other thing. For people listening to this and watching this, that's not being rude. That's not being rude. That's setting boundaries for your top priority at that time. And the only thing that's being rude is when you don't accomplish the top priority because you're letting other people down in the process that you committed to, which goes to the next thing I'm going to ask you. When you say yes to someone, because we talk about this all the time, everybody asks and everybody wants your time. They want your time. They want your attention. It doesn't matter. It's from all facets, business, friends, work, family. Everybody wants your time and you should give that to them. But keep this in mind, you always have a saying. When you say yes to one thing, excuse me, saying yes to one thing, you're saying what? You're saying no to everything else. Everything else.
1: Because if you, just like me being here with you today, Mm -hmm. you know, this was something you and I have been talking about for a long time. And so me being with you today means that other people, there are other people in Jacksonville, in fact, outside the door of this studio. Correct. (laughs) That would like to have my time, but I'm saying no to all them because I'm in here with you. Mm -hmm. And there's probably 20 people outside the door of this studio They would like to chat with one or the other, one or both of us. Absolutely. But we're in here.
0: Yeah. And so I think that goes, um, you know, I delve that down to the business world. Hey, you got a minute? Hey, can I ask you a real quick question? Those yeses when you, hey, can you help me with this? Yes. When you do that, when you commit, you're saying no to the the priority that's on your plate right now. You're Mm -hmm. also saying no to other potential business endeavors, opportunities, because you're saying yes to that moment. By no means am I saying turn those down. But be very selective in your your day when you say yes to all of that stuff. And don't be scared to delegate. A lot of people, you know, are so in control or control freaks. They don't delegate that off like they should. And, you know, and I always say, like, if you've hired someone to do a position and you don't delegate to them to do that, then why'd you hire them? Correct. So what, that's one of those things that I think gets missed in the goal-setting process and the, and the fundamentals as well. So what about this? You were talking earlier about John Maxwell and Patrick Lencioni. Talk to me about who you listen to and why does that matter?
1: I think the, uh, who you listen to is important for several reasons. Okay. The first thing I'll tell you is that I believe that some people don't listen to enough other I agree people. With that. I think that some people listen to the wrong other people. Yes. Okay. So let's just talk about wrong. Let's assume mm-hmm. that We'll go past the enough because you need to learn from other people. Success leaves clues. You need to go learn from other people. But let's just talk about talking to the wrong people. I think there are two levels of talking to the wrong people. The first thing I see in young professionals is they tend to partner up with someone about their same age and their same experience level. You've seen Mm -hmm. this, I'm sure. All the time. Yeah. And so what happens is if if you kind of team up or pal around with somebody who's of your same experience level and same place, in professional development, it will give you a feeling of comfort. Mm-hmm. It will give you a feel of comfort in failure as well as in success. So that comfort can go both ways. If you're struggling with something, you turn to your friend and they're struggling with it too. So now you think it's okay to struggle because, quote, everybody struggles with this, end quote. No, they don't. That's right. There are people that got through this. So that's the wrong level of... of um, Listening. Mm -hmm. Another wrong level of listening is listening to someone that is too far ahead of you. So I'm amazed at how many young people, let's say 22 years old, just got their degree. And they approach me and they say,
0: tell me your story. I want to do what you do. Kind of like that young man going to John Maxwell.
1: Sure, sure. And they can't do what I do. They don't have my experience. They don't have my... Um, judgment. They don't have my intuition. They may not have the capital to do what I'm doing. They may not have the expenses to do what I'm doing. They may not have the skills. And so talking to me is also not good for them. I always like to tell people, talk to somebody who's a few layers above you,
0: mm-hmm.
1: not, up in the, not up in the ozone and also not at your same level. Um, I like to tell this story about who you listen to. I once coached a high school golf team, and I remember one day one of the young ladies on, on the team uh, was frustrated. I don't, I don't remember what she was trying to do, learn how to chip a ball or do a bump and run shot mm-hmm. or something, and I walked over to her and I said, what are you, what are you doing? Now, she's a 17-year-old woman with okay. limited athletic ability, okay. and she was trying to do something that she saw Tiger Woods doing on TV <laughs> the previous Sunday. She goes, well, I saw Tiger doing this, and I'm going to figure out how to do it. And, and I had to look at her and said, that, that's not the right role model for you. You're not Tiger. He hits 4,000 balls a week. He's in top Absolutely. physical condition. He's you know been doing this since he was three years old. So let me show you how to do this in a way that will work for you. And so I helped her and got her kind of straightened out. I've also seen um, in the real estate business, I've seen people listen to uh, some rock star realtor, you know, in another state that might be doing thousands of transactions and what have you, and this realtor will t- say, "Here's how I do what I do," and then some beginner will try to duplicate it, and they can't. Right. They can't afford it. They don't. That's they can't afford it. They so they're listening to the r- at the wrong level. the The perfect person to listen to is someone who's a little bit ahead of you, who still can relate to where you are or aren't who can give you things that are doable to you, okay? So that's the first level of who you listen to is picking the right person to learn from, Mm -hmm. okay? The second level of who you listen to is this. I think that people have a lot of spare time in their day where they don't listen to anybody. And I'll give you an example. how, How much time you spend in your car a day, Quinn? um probably close to 30 minutes to an hour okay all right so if you were if you were still producing mm-hmm. how many hours a day would you spend in your car 3 3, Three hours. hours a day in your Three car 3 hours a day 200 days a year that's uh, if i'm doing my math right that's uh, 600. 600 hours that's a lot of hours that's a lot of hours what well, so when you look at the car in traffic next to you what are they typically doing
0: oh they're usually listening to music you know bouncing around do it. listening on their cell phone texting, texting. doing things that are that are, they probably shouldn't be doing Unproductive. Correct. What if
1: in that 600 hours a year you just spent half of it putting something healthy in your mind, a podcast, a book on tape, or Mm -hmm. audio book, putting something good in your head? At the end of the year, you would have had 300 hours of really good material in your head that would change your mindset, that might change your habits, that might change your focus, might change your relationship, could do anything. And so, what I find is there's a lot of downtime in people's days, particularly people who are out on the road, mm-hmm. moving around, traveling, and what have you and they're they're doing nothing productive with that time one of my uh one of my uh, team is is a very avid podcast guy, mm-hmm. and you I know you happen to have one of your guys on your team, if not mm-hmm. several, listening to podcasts constantly. It's amazing to me to have a conversation with that person at the mindset they have correct the can do attitude the the way they're formulating solutions in their mind because they've spent hundreds of hours putting healthy material in their mind, not listening to the radio, not texting, not listening to some talk show on the radio, whatever. And the point is two levels of listening. The first level is what you do with your spare time and do you put healthy stuff in your mind or junk. Mm -hmm. The second level is picking the right person as a mentor or as a role model And having that person be appropriately ahead of you so that they can bring you up, but not so far ahead of you that it's impossible to achieve what they're achieving.
0: I love that. And, you know, not only am I in my car at that time for three hours, but I'm also at a desk that doesn't require me not to listen to something. Because if you can listen to the radio in the background, you could absolutely listen to a book in the background. You could listen to some sort of engagement in the background that's also going to work through that. You know, I see people with earbuds in all the time walking around. You know, there's opportunities to supplement good stuff. You know, I always felt like when I left college, the last thing I want to do is read a book. I'm done. I, I read all that. And there was a gap in my life where I didn't do that. And I missed out. There was a lot of good food I could have put into my soul and into my mind. I didn't do that. And the minute, seven years later, I picked up books again and started reading, studying, learning. My perspective changed. My success changed. My relationships changed. That's not ironic. No, it's, it's not causal. It's, it's causal. It's, it's absolutely. Because then there's people that sit at home with no disrespect, binge watch. I got people that come to me and go, hey, have you watched this series? Have you, got, have you, have you done this? Have you seen this? And I'm like, I, I don't have time, right? I don't have time to watch TV because I'm either coaching, I'm running around with my kids, my wife and I are engaged in something. You know, I would rather have a meaningful conversation than watch a series, or binge watch something. Because if I can't talk about something right now, it, it, then you know, then that might warrant a time to do that. But if I'm reading and I'm studying and I hear something that is, wow, wow, I got to share that with my spouse. Hey, did you, have you thought about this? Did you hear this? Get her take on that. Now I'm engaging them in this as well. Mm-hmm. You know, And taking even some of the things that we've talked about today, which we've talked about for years, I take this home and I share it with my kids. Now, a lot of this is way over their heads. You know, They're not of age to fully grasp this yet. But for the first time, As a parent, I watched my son set goals that he wanted to achieve on his football career from the weight room to being on the field. And he put it in his, he, he, you know, he's 14. He went and put in the notes of his of his phone. Because that's that's writing for him. But he wrote it down and he shared it with me. And then I watched him turn around and go back and review this in the season. He's like, wow, I did that. And I did that. Okay, I almost got here, but I didn't. But I got real close. And watching him do that, I go, Well, why do you think all that happened? I promise you," he goes. "Dad, I wrote it down," and it, I'm like, "You know, that's that that's a cool parenting moment for our listeners to work within too. Is that you can go home and share this with your kids because they're not going to learn this anywhere else."
1: Um, one of my uh, one of my kids had a similar experience where she, for the first time, she wrote her goals down, mm-hmm. and what she achieved in five months far exceeded what she had achieved in the prior five years, probably, and she came wow. back to me after the first five or six months and said, okay, dad, what's next? And I said, okay, get another sheet paper. Let's write down the next set of goals. That's right. And, you know, she totally changed her life in a period of about three years, three or four years. But it Isn't started with her writing them down. Yeah. She told me later in life that she saved the first set of goals that she ever wrote down. She still has them. That's
0: fantastic. And she looks at
1: them occasionally just as a reminder of uh, how far you can go when you get really on task
0: about writing your goals down and pursuing and making sure that you're spending your time correctly. Yeah, it's amazing. So today is December 16th. The economy is not in the best position and we're hearing a lot of negative in the news. There's a lot of negative as to where we're going, a lot of opinions that's going on. And If you listen to our show, we have our opinions of that as well. Mindset is extremely important in these times. And when we talk about mindset, this isn't the first time we've seen some sort of decline in the economy or something that's maybe out of our control, right? And so you've gone through some personal journeys with this, and you recently shared those with me. Do you mind sharing those with our listeners?
1: Well, I, I don't know if I'm a magnet for, uh, <laughs> for distressed industries, but yes, I have had four rounds in my life of dealing with a distressed industry, starting in the 70s uh, with something that happened with uh, plastic pop bottles at a company I was with, and then continuing into the 80s, when I worked in the oil field services business and the oil field services business went into the, just into the toilet. And then in the nineties I was affiliated with the insurance industry when Hurricane Andrew blew through Florida and decimated the insurance industry. And it went through massive change. And then of course, adding to my experience, I opened my first real estate office in the middle of 2006, right before the global financial crisis, which was of course driven by real estate collapse. And so I've been through four of them personally and survived all four of them. And there are some common themes that I've noticed from looking back on these four different, very different distressed industry condition situations. And so there are things that I've seen that that really have stuck with me. And so I sit here and look at the current situation where it looks like we're going to go through a period of minor or major distress, who knows Mm -hmm. how deep it will go. But we're going to have a period of distress in the real estate industry. We're not going to sell as many homes as have been sold previously. And of course, that drives major segments of the economy. Sure. So it's going to have trickle-down effect to other segments of the economy. And so um, the thing that I have learned is that to have the complete opposite mindset that you would think you would have, most people would say, oh, my gosh, Things are so awful out there. By the way, that's a victim mentality. <laughs> things are so awful out there. I'm just going to wait until things improve. I'm going to wait till interest rates go down. Or I'm going to wait till inflation subsides. Or I'm going to wait until you know Joe Biden's not president or whatever they say. Sure. I mean, whatever they say, uh, they're they're going to wait. I actually have the exact opposite feeling about this, which has allowed me to survive and actually thrive in all four of these times in my life when there's been a distressed situation, and that is, I figure that everybody else is quitting. Everybody else is waiting. Everybody else doesn't know what to do. And so I'm going to take action. And so my mindset is, during these times of industry distress, regardless of the industry, I've seen common factors. What I've seen is massive market share shifts. And so you'll see... For example, in the last real estate crisis we had in 06 through 2009, 10, 12, whenever you want to say it ended. But back in the last one, I remember how many people decided they weren't going to do short sales. Now, without going into detail about short sales, it was a different way of closing transactions. And so you either either did it or you were out of business. Right. And I remember how many people would say, I'm not going to participate in short sale real estate transactions. Guess what? They didn't sell any, they didn't do any business out of yep, out of the business. Other people said, "Wow, this is an opportunity for me to learn to do something that nobody knows how to do, and they gained massive market share because they learned how to do short sale transactions. They adapted, they adapted, They adapted. So for me, mindset in these times of distress is about, okay, what opportunity does this create because there's an upset to the industry. So the rules are changing. The rules are changing. So what do I do with rules changing? Can I be a quick adapter or am I going to be a laggard and not adapt? Is my mindset going to be, I'm going to, this is my time to gain market share, or is my mindset going to be, gosh, times are tough out there. I'm just going to take a break until it gets better. And what I see is the people that have the healthier mindset, even though it's tough, not saying it's not tough, Mm -hmm. but three years from now, five years from now, when things change back to some other positive state of affairs or positive industry conditions, they will have massive market share gains.
0: So what I'm hearing is things will happen out of your control. You didn't cause these these economical, you know, strifes that happened during that time. However, due to adaptation and due to mindset, you can still be successful. Well,
1: not can be. You got to do it if you want to be successful. There you go. Not just can be. You have to do it. So right now, I look at market share mm-hmm. more than transaction count because, because the transaction
0: count is down. Right. Okay. Specifically talking to real estate. Talking, here, about, so real talking estate. about real estate. Here right now. Transactions are down across the United States. Volume is up, but you measure market share as a form of success. Correct. Okay. Because what's going to happen is people that haven't mastered the
1: fundamentals, mm-hmm. going back to our earlier conversation, will not know what to do during this time of distress and so they'll sit on the sidelines and lose market share. Mm-hmm. Whereas people that have mastered fundamentals and are doing the right things every day will gain market share. They won't see it in their transaction count today, but they'll see it in the improved transaction count later where they've gained market share. Yeah. So the measures have to change. The mindset has to change. And if it does, there'll be massive gains
0: over the long term. And this goes to a little bit – we've heard this saying before, but this goes a little bit to the old Warren Buffett – be greedy when people are fearful and be fearful when people are greedy. Oftentimes that gets associated with money and investing, but you can do it in your business just with the stuff you're talking about right now. You know, if you're being greedy in the transaction, saying I'm going to adapt. I'll be greedy and learn how to do this. That's a form of greed. Like greed is in like learning, taking on as much as I can, absorbing, or sit back and be fearful. You know, you can apply it to your business and, and really, really use that same, um, you know, same mindset. So one of the things that you said earlier that I left off that I want to go back to is mastery and mastering and how many hours does it take for you to be uh, considered of mastering something
1: I think the rule of thumb is 10,000 hours isn't that the number that's that what people say that's what I've heard I, I would just also say maybe it's in the number of reps you get
0: there you go because
1: yep. you know if I could spend a lot of hours staring at a computer screen and I'm not mastering anything but if I if repetition. I get a lot of reps repetitions then then I can master it. People will say to me, for example, um, wow, how do you do that so easily? I said, I've done it 2,000 times in the past five years. I <laughs> pretty much know how to do it. Right. <laughs> you know, you, you did that without any notes. How would you do that? Well, I kinda, I've kind of done it. Yeah. You know, just think about singing your favorite song. If you've sung your favorite song 1,000 times,
0: you know the words. Yeah. I mean, Charlie, our producer. You, you've sang a song. You, you're, you're a musician. You've done it a thousand times. I mean, I, I've I've seen you before at work. No 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 notes. No iPad. No nothing. Just rouse it right off. Right. Exactly. Even today. Even this episode. You're, even though you have an iPad with you, you haven't turned it on one time. Well, you're talking to me about stuff I, have I've done a lot. You've mastered. Right? Done it many times. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Thank exactly. You. Thank well, you know, I'll tell you this. I um I'm I'm excited about this next segue. I want to lead into here. You're in the process of writing a book right now and uh, I love the title by the way so do you mind sharing that with our with our listeners
1: yeah you're getting I'm a little getting a little bit ahead of myself where I am now I've just outlined it but I just actually I just finished writing my first book I just published a textbook okay and it just um, we're just using it for the first time this semester so um, well congratulations we'll how, thank you that was a tough task <laughs> and I don't know if I'll write another textbook but I have been toying with the idea of writing a book that, you know, there's a lot of people out there that they're, you know, Mark Zuckerberg's and Bill Gates, mm-hmm. and those, there's those guys out there. Those guys are one in a bazillion. They yeah, don't come what, along. And what do you mean by that? What I see in students today is that they, they think the way to wealth is just create an app or a piece of software, throw it out there, it sells a zillion copies, and they retire at the age of 28, a billionaire. Right. That's that pressure. They've seen it. That's that Nick Saban effect. Uh, th- It happens, but not often. That's correct. What happens more often is people become successful over a period of time by mastering certain skills and and so on. So I have this idea that I'm going to uh, write a book titled Self-Made. Love it. And I've identified in my life somewhere between 20 and 30 people, male and female, old and young, some are deceased, from whom I've learned lessons or observed success in them. And these are 20 or 30 people that started from humble beginnings. I'm not talking about they were, you know, homeless or on the street. Poverty driven. Not not that, not that. I'm just talking about regular people. Right. They got a high school degree. They went to junior college. Maybe they they started with humble beginnings. Uh, Their parents weren't particularly successful, you know, wealthy. Their Their parents were good, solid people that had, you know, just what we'll call normal lives. And these people end up at the top of the heap in terms of wealth and free time and influence and contribution to society and just, they end up at the top, in the top 1% or 2%. And so, I've studied at least the ones that I know and I've observed some common factors in them. And so, what I'm going to do is uh, I'm going to try to put this down on paper, including my own experiences, because this somewhat resembles my life. You know, I started mm-hmm. from humble beginnings, reasonably humble beginnings, and now I own several businesses and college professor argued that's a pretty decent outcome. Yeah. I'd say so. So anyway, um I'm gonna try to write a book on this. And I've outlined it and I've bounced it off two or three people and and uh, so for me it's a matter of just picking up the pen or I guess turning on the <laughs> turning on the word document and start typing.
0: Yeah. Or start dictating, or whatever yeah. it is. So yes, I have thought about that. Yeah, sounds like you need to uh, take another Thursday and Friday off and complete the book by <laughs> <Knocking> Saturday. <out, laughs> Knock it out by Saturday. Once I would be done. Yeah, well, so, it's, it's probably a little bit stronger than that. But no, uh, no, absolutely. I, I know it is, and um, you know, I just want to say I really appreciate everything you've done. Um, inside of my life as well. You know, you've been a big advocate uh, for me personally, and uh, getting a chance to know you over the last 12 years has not only been rewarding, but, you know, calling you a friend and, and having you uh, a, a, be a business partner as well has been an absolute pleasure and, and, and a godsend. So thank you very much for that.
1: Well, thank you. You'll be on my list of people that I'll uh, I'll oh. quote in my book.
0: Well, I'm, I'm honored. I appreciate
1: that. Yeah, so um, I don't know if you want to talk about this book at all, but it's interesting. We've already talked about some of the th- I'm looking at the outline I have here on my iPad. Uh, Here's well, now you turn it on. Yeah, <laughs> goal. Or, well, I haven't written this book yet, so I'm not. I haven't mastered this yet. I'm um, talking about goal orientation. Here's a section mm-hmm. on goal orientation. Here's talking about how you set up a personal mission for yourself. Here's talking about accountability. Mm-hmm. Here's a question. Uh, asking questions. Creating influence. Uh, picking mentors. All the subjects, or some of the subjects that you've just asked me about since we've been talking here recently. Uh, here's a section on how to network and how to create a sphere of influence um, on and on and on. So plan to put some of these thoughts in writing and uh, and is typical with the way I like to do things, just straight to the point, hard hitting, no fluff, just here's what successful people do. Here's what they don't do. and the the bookshelves are crowded with this with this stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, how to be successful, how to be a millionaire, all of these things. Mine is targeted toward the average guy who just wants—average person, guy being Mm -hmm. non-gender—but the average person who just wants to break out and they want to achieve at a higher level than they've been born into or been raised into. They just want to break out. And so it's about becoming a self-made person—self-made man is the term you hear—but self-made person by just taking the right actions— by doing the right things. And so that's the
0: idea that I have. I love it. You know, for the person that's buttoned up against the ceiling of success and can't quite have that ceiling breakthrough, this sounds like that might be the book for that person.
1: Yeah, you find, uh, by the way, this ceiling of success is an interesting concept. Mm -hmm. What I find is that when people are bumping up against a ceiling of achievement, typically they need one of a few things to break through. Okay, so here are what i think to be the few things they need to break through. Number 1, they need to start doing something differently.
0: They
1: mm-hmm. Okay, can't keep doing the same thing and break through new ceilings of it. They need to do something different. The old insanity definition. Exactly, exactly. Usually it's one of two things. They either have to learn something that they don't know or they have to change the people they're surrounded with. Surrounded by, excuse me. So that's difficult because most people don't want to change their habits and they don't want to—upgrade's upgrade. not the right term. That's not the term I mean to say. They don't want to surround themselves with new people because they're comfortable in their current friends. They're comfortable in their current relationships. Mm -hmm. But usually meeting a new person can propel you to places
0: you weren't. I, I sat in an audience where you told a young man that. I'll never forget this. I said in the audience when you told a young man, he was explaining his challenges, his stuff, and you said, you need to change your audience. You need to change the people you hang out with. You need to change. And I mean, this was a a 26-year-old man you're telling this to. I'll never forget. Two days later, this person moved out of the house he was living in with the people that he identified as the problem based on what you told him. And then I watched what happened to that young man years afterwards as far as career success and how much happier he became. But that was a giant leap of faith. That took a huge... Huge amount of just, you know, uh, fortitude to do it. And he did it. But I watched you tell him, if you don't do that, that won't change. And darn if he didn't do it, I was shocked. I was t- to this date, still shocked he did it. But he did, it. no, no, no quarrels, jumped right out and did it. Parenting 101. <laughs>
1: Watch who your children are
0: hanging out with. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So just dealing Moved forward into the professional world. Watch who your understudies are hanging out with. If they're hanging out with complainers and victims, they will become one. If they're hanging out with high achievers, they will likely become one.
0: Yeah, show me your friends, I'll show you your future. Exactly. So, well, Steve, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been an honor having you here. I always enjoy hanging out. Uh, usually we're doing this over a beer, but it's too early in the morning to be doing that. But thanks again <laughs> for stopping by the podcast. Where can people learn more about Steve Tufts and, and maybe find you on uh, online?
1: Well, I have a, a website, which I'm in the process of uh, redoing, but it's thetuftsgroup.com. Okay just very very straightforward the com. they can read my bio and got contact information there and you know kind of links to all the businesses and all the things i'm involved in where they can enroll as a uh, marketing student at the University of Florida, and I'll find them there. How about that?
0: I love it. I love it. Hey, for our audience, if you like what you're hearing on the show, rate this podcast, please. Leave some comments at the bottom of the podcast, and check us out if you want to see the graphs and some of the images we've talked about on our YouTube channel. Subscribe and also leave comments there for us as well. Steve, thanks again for being on the show. It was great having you today.
1: Yeah, and I hope you'll indulge me if I can just say go Gators as we wrap this up. There you go. Quentin, thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you, sir. Yeah.
0: I got one more shot, I'm gonna make it One more chance, I'm gonna take it I meant it when I said it, now it's time for me to do it I got one life to live, so i put them all into it, yeah